like that. And we're going to seek to understand and apply this text in its context today. Abram in the Strange Night. I couldn't think of a better title for the sermon than this. Was, this must have been quite a strange evening for Abram. And yet it's one of the most significant and important events in Abram's life. It's interesting, if you were to uh, carefully look at Genesis 15, these 21 verses, you begin to notice that it appears that there is a great deal of parallelism between the two sections. Verses 1 through 5 is one section, the first section. In this section, God promises Abram seed, offspring, descendants. In verses 7 through 21, there is a second section. In this section, God promises Abram land for that seed, a place for those people to be. And I was studying this and working through it, I began to notice the parallelism, which is a common uh, Hebrew way of writing. And I became convinced as I was reading this that this is actually verses 1 through 5 and 7 through 21 is actually happening simultaneously. Uh, this is my theory, um, that it's happening at the same time. So, for example, when it becomes dark and God takes Abram out and says, look at the stars, verse 4 5, count them if you can, and that will be your descendants. At that same time that evening, that night, he's setting up this very dramatic expression where as fiery torch in a burning oven is passing through carcasses. And so when Abram is um, cutting up these animals that we read about and all of that, that's happening the same day as when God is giving him the promise of seed. In other words, all this is happening on one night, I believe. And the, my three reasons for that, first of all, is the um, very obvious parallelism. Verse 1, the word of the Lord says, I am your shield. 15.7, I am the Lord who brought you out. 15.2, Abram responds, O Lord God, what will you give me? That phrase, Lord God, that, that means sovereign God, Adonai Elohim, only used twice in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, sorry, in the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. And it's here, 15.2 and 15.8. He says again, O Lord God, how am I to know? And then we have this strange parable we're going to talk about in 9 through 11 that doesn't have a parallel counterpart. But then, 15.4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 15.12 through 16, Behold, the Lord said. And so on and so on. He brought him outside. 15.5, Look toward the heavens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark outside, he said, So your seed, to your seed I will give this land. So the parallelism is very obvious in this section between these two. Um, the second reason why I think this is one event is both Seed and land promises go together through the Pentateuch. When God gives one, he almost always gives the other, whether it's to Abram or to Isaac or to Jacob. And here we have seed and land promises given. And the third reason is that they both happen at night. Seems like obvious reading it then. It probably is the same night when this happens. Well, the main part happens at night. What's the point? Why does it matter if there is one event or multiple events or spread out over days? I think it only matters in the sense that verse 6 does not have a parallel, um, con parallel token. What is verse 6? Verse 6 is the editorial response of Moses. And Abram believed in the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, this verse is the editorial not just of what happens in the immediate verse, but of this whole event. This is the response of Abram to it all. Faith. And that faith is credited as righteousness. The proposition of the text we're going to focus on 7 through 21 this morning is simply this. That when God comes near with the assurance of promise, Abram responds with simple faith. And God treats that simple faith as righteousness, and thus fully justifies him. There are three sections in 7 through 21. God's promise and Abram's concern in verses 7 and 8. 
God's illustration and explanation, and that's sort of the really strange part of this text in 9 through 16. And then God's oath and holy covenant in the last verses, 17 through 21. And essentially, this morning, I simply want to walk through these three sections, and I think provide what, for me, was an extremely encouraging implication in the end. So let's first start talking about God's promise and Abram's concern. God comes to Abram and he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And in this, God comes with power and expressiveness. I am Yahweh. Yahweh is a derivative of I am. I am, I am. The self-existent, ultimate, eternal God. He comes with power in his words. And we find that Abram is arrested immediately with the ultimate nature of God. I am Yahweh, Abram. But we find also he follows that, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Remember that God expressing that he brings Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans is an expression of God's salvation. That God regenerates, that he completely transforms the pagan into the worshiper. I brought you out. I am your Redeemer, Abram. You didn't take it upon yourself to get out of there. I brought you out of there. And then this really precious two words that is characteristic of our God. To give. God brings people out of the darkness of sin to give. He's generous. He's gracious. We give you something, Abram. God is generous. And particularly, what is he offering or what is he giving to Abram? Give this land to inherit it. Now, what's interesting about the concept of God giving land to Abram is that when we understand the whole of the Scripture, when we understand both covenants, the Old and New Covenant, put together in the 66 books of the Bible, you find that the concept of God giving this land is central to all of it. What do I mean by that? Zion is the land he's speaking of. And from cover to cover, the idea that God has a city that he gives people an inheritance in is one of the most fantastic expressions of God's mercy and generosity. It finds its first expression in the Garden of Eden, and God gave them a land to cultivate. And then it finds its next expression theologically in this land that he's giving Abram that his descendants will come back and possess, the nation of Israel and the land that they have. But if you read Hebrews chapter 11, you find that patriarchs like Abram recognize that the promise of land to inherit went way beyond a piece of rock in the middle of the Judean wilderness. Because Abram himself was dissatisfied with that as the fulfillment of the promise. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the text tells us that Abram lived in that land wandering, never settling down, because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for Zion. And then this book, this holy book of God, ends with essentially God saying, this is the land that you will inherit. And he calls it his new Jerusalem. The final inheritance for God's people. So the idea of inheriting the land is actually a that one of the prime theological themes from the garden to the city. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22. And so God is intentional. He didn't just bring Abram out in his redemption and say, and now that should be enough for you. Figure it out. But no, I've got land and I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to inherit it and your seed is going to inherit it. And then we find in the New Testament Scripture that the idea of Abram's seed is a lot bigger than we thought it was. And they're going to inherit it. And then we find out at the end, it's like, and this is the beauty of this land, this Zion, the city of God, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And God's bringing the final installment of this promise. So Abram's response is found in verse 8. First of all, let's just notice that Abram responds appropriately. His response to all of this, the God who is ultimate, redeemer, generous, and intentional, he responds with these two words, Lord God, Adonai Elohim, sovereign one, I recognize what you're saying. You are Yahweh, I am not. Lord God. But then there is the human element to Abram, the natural element. How will I know? But I lack assurance of these promises. But I'm not sure about them. And there is an uncertainty in Abram regarding the promise, particularly of land, the specific promise given in this text. How do I know that I will inherit it? This parallels very well with the first question Abram asked in all of this in verse of chapter 15, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? I don't have seed and I don't have land. And you promised me both of these. What assurances do I have? Again, I do not believe that Abram in any way is expressing unbelief, faithlessness. He's expressing the humanity and the uncertainty that goes along with that. You see, because he's not Yahweh. He is not sovereign God. And we are not sovereign God. You've got a lot of questions, right? I want to just note, this is not the intent of the text. But God, not once does the Lord, eviscerate Abram for asking him questions. Not once does he punish him, show disappointment, because he's like, how do I know? Instead, God gives him assurance. He gives him certain expectancy. And that's in this middle section of the text. So what is going on here in verses 9 through 16, particularly 9 through 12? God tells him, Bring me some sacrifices. Five animals that Abram's to bring to sacrifice. Uh, a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Now, right away, this is sort of unique um, for a couple of reasons. First, these five sacrifices, uh, what, what, what is the connection of them? Why, why a pigeon? Why, why goat? Why female goat? Why all those sort of things? you look through the Levitical law, and remember, the people reading this in the first, they're reading this through Leviticus, they're reading this through that lens, and we have to read it through that lens as well. And these five animals are actually the five acceptable sorts of sacrifices within Judaism. The birds for those that were poor, and the uh, calf and goat and lamb, lamb, for those that were not poor. So these are the different, you look through the book of Leviticus, these are the different kinds of animal sacrifices that were allowed. So it's very clear that these are what's called clean animals, that these are the Jewish clean sacrifices meant in worship to God. So God is saying, bring me a sacrifice. Now the other sort of unique thing, I don't know if you noticed it, but why, why am I a three-year-old goat and heifer and ram? What's fascinating about that is whereas we can see these five sacrifices throughout the book of Leviticus, this is the only place in the Bible that a three-year-old animal is, is said to be offered as a sacrifice. Most of the time, it's a yearling that's offered. And that's what's prescribed in the law. So this, first of all, means that it must matter, right? <laughs> that it's unique, so there must be some significance to it. We'll get to that significance in a little bit later, but I think in the rest of the verses it kind of brings it out. So what's Abram to do? Well, he doesn't say that God told him to do this, but I think it's pretty obvious that Abram was following the word of the Lord. It's not uncommon for a text 
He'll just give us a brief word of God, and then we expect that God filled him in on the details. We have the example of Noah and the ark. We don't have all the details, but we know God told him what to do. Uh, same thing here. It seems like God instructs him, but Abram responds with he cuts these animals in half. Probably, uh, they're kind of put in half and put over on each side of perhaps a little of a valley, a little bit of an indention in the ground. And the, according to some um, traditions, uh, some ancient traditions of sacrifice, this is a common way of striking a covenant or a, an oath. And the idea there is the blood would run together from the animals. Usually it wasn't one animal cut in two. It was usually two animals and two people would each sacrifice it. And the blood would run down, and the two individuals making the covenant, the oath, would walk between, and they would be kind of like blood brothers. They'd make a blood oath, being both in the blood of their sacrifices, respectively. So this is a little different, but it seems to be that sort of idea. So he cuts the animals in half, and then he sits down and he waits for Jehovah, for Yahweh, to accept his sacrifice. And he waits. And he waits. And before long... The stench of the blood rises to the sky, and birds of prey um, come and begin to swoop down on the sacrifice. Now, this is a problem, because in the Jewish law, vultures, eagles, that's what the word there, birds of prey, is the literal Hebrew there, they're unclean. If they land on the carcass, that sacrifice is no good. You have to throw it away and do another one. So Abram does the best that he can while he's waiting on God, and he drives away. He gets up, and he's chewing these vultures away, and he's got five of them, actually, you know, ten pieces, right? And he's running back and forth between the pieces, swatting away at the vultures. And the text tells us something very fascinating, that that's tiring work. And Abram can't stay awake. And so he falls asleep. And now there is no one to protect the sacrifices. That's the end of the sort of like story. Like, what in the world is this all about? This is strange, right? This is actually, and nearly every scholar I consulted agreed with this. This is very clearly an illustration. There is a metaphor or allegory or parable, whatever word you want to use, to say something else was going on here. This isn't just about a sacrifice and whether God's going to accept it or not. Abraham offered plenty of sacrifices in his life. We read about some of them, and, and it didn't go this way. So something unique is happening. And as with most parables, if you remember even the parables in the New Testament that Jesus told, the idea was he'd tell a story or some event, and then there's an interpretation of that story that comes afterwards. This is a parable not like those stories that Jesus told, but one more like we find in the Old Testament with a guy like named Hosea. Some of you have been on our Wednesday night and you've heard us working through, Caleb working through Hosea, and it's similar to that, where God basically tells Hosea, you're going to be the parable. You're going to go marry this woman who's a prostitute, she's going to leave you, she's going to do all these things, and then I'm going to use that illustration of your life to talk about Israel's adultery and their leaving me. Or like the prophet Ezekiel. If you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you're familiar with the fact that it's very strange. So God tells Ezekiel, lay on one side for a year. Okay? Okay, now lay on the other side for a year. Now bake your bread over some dung. And you're going, this is weird. And I'm sure Ezekiel was saying, this is even, he was thinking more weird than you. Right? And, but then God explains that these are all symbols, they're illustrations of truths he was teaching. So Abram, like Ezekiel the prophet, or like Hosea the prophet, he's like a prophet here. And God is using this thing to be an illustration of something else. What is that something else? That's the next section, telling us of something else. Now look at that part of the text. Verse 13. After Abram falls asleep, a great horror and great darkness fall upon him. We'll talk a little bit what that means at the end. Then he said to Abram, so after he's been waiting and he fell asleep. So Abram's asleep, presumably, and God is now speaking to him or coming to him in his, in his sleep to speak to him. But Abram's hearing all this. Abram's not um, absent. He's just in a sleep. 
trying to keep those vultures away. And this is what God says. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now parables are notoriously tricky things. Mostly because there are aspects of it that is illustrated and aspects of the event that are not. In the parable Jesus told, it wasn't that every little uh, jot and tittle had some deeper meaning. It's usually there's one main thing or two main things being said, and the other things sort of add color or make the story work. This is the same here. Not everything has a parallel meaning. But you begin to see something emerging. These animals, these five sacrifices, which are the clean, consecrated animals of Israel, they, I believe, represent the offspring of Abram. The clean, the consecrated, the ones set apart for holy worship, the people of God. Now, could go on to the detail. I think we will actually see this in the next few chapters, but they are cut. Just as another illustration will be brought up later when God will institute circumcision for Abraham, where he will cut his people, cut them out and aside for his use. So these are cut. They're for his. They're consecrated, is the idea of that being cut. They're set apart. They are clean. But the vultures swoop in. The Gentiles, the unclean, they will afflict them for about 400 years. In the waiting for the God to come near and accept the sacrifice or bring His people in, there is a time of waiting, and the time of waiting that Abram is experiencing is like the time of waiting that Abram's descendants will experience while they're waiting and they're crying out and they're saying, we are yours, we are cut for you, but where are you? The vultures are swooping in on us and they'll be afflicted like these sacrifices were afflicted by the unclean birds of prey. Specifically in the text, it seems obvious that what we're looking at is this nation of Egypt that will afflict them for 400 years. God promises that He will take care of the vultures. He, he will drive away the birds of prey. Well, He will do better than drive them away. He will decimate them. And He will judge them. And the sacrifice of His people will be accepted. He will, they will come out of that affliction and they will come back into this land to possess it. And He says there will be a delay until the fourth generation. Now, that's where I think, and this is probably not the main point, but I think it's interesting. It's something we're trying to be clear with the text. We have to understand it. This, I think, corresponds back to that three-year-old sacrifice. The three years, I believe, represents the three generations before he comes and shows them his mercy in the fourth generation. I think that's why the three-year sacrifice. This is done later on in the book of Judges to represent a sacrifice, a seven-year-old sacrifice is given to represent seven years of affliction. And so it's not an uncommon way to do that in a parable. But there'll be a delay until the fourth generation. Consequently, Abram will fall asleep. Or, as he says in the text, in the interpretation, Abram, you're not going to see this. You, on the other hand, you'll fall asleep. You will die a good old age and go to your fathers in peace. And so, this is the parable, and then this is the illustration of it. And it's great when you get an illustration of a parable, but I'll be honest, with this one it's like, okay, that just even made it more strange. And so much, this is unique and strange and interesting. God explains, though, in the text, why the delay. Why will there be a delay? He says, because the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, Amorites is one of the nations, the ten nations that will be listed, 
one of those nations in the land of Canaan uh, that we'll know later when we read the book of Exodus that afflicts the people of God in the book of Joshua that afflicts the people of God. But Amorites, we find through the Scripture, means more than just that one nation. Amorites is often uh, a, a metonymy, a singular expression to represent all of the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites, all of them. Essentially what God is telling Abram is the reason for the delay which your people, your offspring, will not get until they read this. By the way, they're the ones reading it. Will not get is that I have purpose in this. Do you believe that God has purpose in your waiting? We struggle with that, do we not? Because I asked him and it didn't happen. Was he not listening? Does he not love me? Does he not care? He's telling Abram, Abram, there's going to be a really long delay. A delay filled with significant affliction. Like that of vultures swooping in to eat you up and your people up. But I have purpose in delay. And what's the purpose? What's the divine purpose in his delay? It's two words. Justice and mercy. That's the divine purpose in the delay. First, justice. Our God is not petty. Yes, to offend in one point is to offend in all the law. But understand that God is saying that when justice is executed on these wicked people, no one will question that they deserve it. Their iniquity will be filled up. God sometimes delays justice in order to allow those who will receive that justice to build, pile on their guilt. Guilt on guilt. Several years ago when I visited Israel and toured many of the Canaanite cities, now tells the archaeological ruins, and every one of those Canaanite cities, our guide would tell us, right over there, that's the bloodletting stone. That's where they brought the children over to let them bleed out to offer a sacrifice to their God. And that right there, that's where they put the children on the hands of Molech so they could see them, cut them and watch them and gut them and watch them die slowly as a sacrifice. Those walls over there, that's where they found their infants skeletons, because when you built a barn, you put a donkey in there in the walls in order to offer it. When you build a room in the house, you got to put a baby in there to offer it unto God. And the more I saw these, we read these things and these archaeological artifacts, seeing them, my mind went back to Genesis 15. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is not petty in His judgment. And I heard a statement the other day, I heard it twice actually, interestingly, that I sounds really good, but I hope to heaven is not true. I heard an individual, I think it was a judge in a court case, who expressed that justice delayed is injustice. Uh, sorry, justice delayed is no justice. And I get the sentiment that we should not delay justice. But I hope that's not true. Because there is a lot of justice that is delayed. But I also believe that the delay does not negate that God will bring final justice. He will execute judgment on the Amorites and all who follow them. But it's not just justice that's seen in the delay. It's also divine mercy. The Lord God, the Sovereign One who knows the end from the beginning, He is waiting on the sinners. 
He's letting them live their best life. Because this will be the only life they have. And why does He do that? Because He is a God who by nature must be merciful. And so justice and mercy is what's behind the delay. And He expresses that to Abram. Justice and mercy. This is where He ends His illustration. I think Abram's probably going reeling a little bit here like, okay, wow, so how shall I know just turned into a really big answer <laughs> with a lot of complication to it. But God's not done yet. You see, He gave this sacrifice and the animals and cut them in two and there's a delay and, and then He explains it, the birds of prey, what they are. He explains what's happening and why it's there and He's teaching Abram this truth. But there is something else, because this is an actual event, there is something else that God is doing here, and that is that He now is going to accept the sacrifice of Abram. Okay, Abram, you've been waiting, and in the wait, I explained to you my reason. Now you understand this lesson I was teaching you, right? And I wonder if Abram was like, okay, I get it. He's like, now just stay asleep, because now it's time for me to prove it to you. And so He does. This is where I think it means that a great horror, a great darkness and horror falls on Abram. I think this is when it happens, because now it gets dark. And to be honest, although I think I'm a full-grown man, sometimes I still get afraid of the dark. Because the darkness is scary. Right? Now we say, well, we don't really know what darkness is because we, we live in a filled with light pollution. But what about when you're out in the middle of nowhere and your battery dies on your car and it's the middle of the night and there's no one for hundreds of miles in the middle of Utah's desert? Darkness feels a little bit scary then, doesn't it? Great horror falls on Abraham as it gets dark. Not a horror just because of the darkness, but because in the darkness it's suddenly pierced with blinding light. And so now God accepts the sacrifice. And the text tells us as God condescends to make it official. That's what the is doing here. Think in your in your mind like that of a of a wedding. Engagement and then wedding and then you have, I mean engagement and then you have the wedding ceremony right. Um, the engagement period is nice, but an engagement period that lasts a long time becomes a bit of a burden. Mostly because you start to wonder, is this ever going to happen? And then think of a kind of an idiot who says. I don't need no ring. I don't need no ceremony to make it official. You, you know, babe, that we're, we're just good for each other. And she, of course, says, oh, of course. And then she's going, but why don't you want to? Why don't you want to make it official? What, are you leaving like a loophole to get out of this in some way? What's the deal? This is similar to what we see here. God has promised Abram these things already, right? This is the ceremony. This is the wedding. This is the official oath, the covenant that will be made now at this time. And it will be one that we made in blood. It will last. And so we see in the text that on the same day, or sorry, verse 17, I'll go back there, it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a burning torch that passed between those pieces. So first it was dark, that's important. Secondly, uh, it says that a burning, a smoking oven, so the word smoke there, that's an important word, smoke, so lots of smoke. What is a smoking oven? That's sort of something we're not used to. We, probably in our minds we're thinking of like our range, like leaving the kitchen and going, obviously we, that's different. So what this is, it's essentially a clay pot, and they would put bread 
in the clay, like dough in the clay pot, and then bring it near to the fire, and it essentially would be smoking the dough. Um, not direct heat, but indirect heat. And as it's smoking the dough, and the dough is rising, and it's baking that way, the pot then, because it's got a narrow top, like billows out like a smokestack, all the smoke coming out. That's why they have a smoking oven. So it's like pot with smoke billowing out of it, filling the air, and smoke covering everything. That's what that's speaking of. And then it says, and a burning, that's the word fiery, the word ish in the Hebrew, and then the word torch, which interestingly does mean like a wooden torch, but the same word, kadin, uh, also means flashing light like lightning, kind of like a flickering torch. So what's interesting to me about this is those words, all of those words, except for the word oven, but all of those words, the darkness, the smoke, the fire, and the flickering lightning, all of those words find themselves in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 when God descends on Mount Sinai. And the same thing sort of happens. That great darkness covers the mountain and there is flickering, flashing light and there is smoke that covers it, great amount of smoke, and then the mountain's on a fire. Same sort of thing when you would look at same sort of words and some of them are used again when Isaiah has his vision and he's brought to heaven and there are flaming, there's a smoke that fills the temple and flaming presence of angels around that. Same similar words and some of the same ones found when the tabernacle is built and the place is filled with smoke and fire and darkness and lightning and the dedications. Similar thing when Moses meets God and there's a burning bush on fire. In other words, when you look at these words, that this is descriptive of God's real and holy presence. So God shows up to accept the sacrifices. And what Abram sees is the holy presence of God that Isaiah saw, that Moses saw, that John the Revelator saw, and those individuals fall down on their faces before God. This is why I think the text says, that a great darkness and horror fell on Abram. The presence of God is near. And when the presence of God is near, it's frightening even to his friends. Because that's who he is as Yahweh, the I Am. We kind of have it backwards in our wedding ceremonies. We have the ceremony where the groom stands at the front and waits, and everyone waits for the bride to come. And all the attention is on the bride. Sorry, ladies. But the Hebrew culture, it was the other way around. The bride would be waiting at her husband or her father's house, and then the groom would show up with the fanfare. He'd show up all decked out, and he'd come and take his bride to his house for feasting. Abram's asleep. And now the holy presence of God, the groom, shows up. And it's smoky and fiery and flashing. And without Abram, while he's still asleep, God passes between the sacrifices. Could you imagine, because our illustrations always break down, a wedding ceremony where the bride was still asleep and it didn't matter. And the wedding went off just fine. Why? How would that ever work? Because at a wedding ceremony, they, they both have to make these vows, right? They both have to say, I do. They both do, and they, they have to listen and hope nobody objects. Right? They have to do all that stuff. I know we don't hardly do all those things anymore, but, but that's the tradition. Because it's an agreement between two people to come in until death do them part, and they both say the same vows, and they both repeat it. But you understand, when God makes an oath, He says, you don't even need to be awake for this, because I'm making the vow, 
and you just keep your mouth shut. I'll handle this. I'll make the covenant, and you sleep on. Because it doesn't matter whether you make a vow or not. It doesn't matter, Abram, whether you say I do to this covenant. It doesn't matter whether you sign the agreement. Because I am the Lord God, and I've signed the agreement, and no one can take that agreement away. You're incidental, Abram, and yet you're going to receive all the benefits. All the good stuff. Now, maybe some ladies would like a wedding where they could sleep through it and then they get all the presents. That's kind of the idea here. Abram gets all the benefits. He gets everything. And he doesn't have to say anything. Yahweh says it all. And does it all. The author of Hebrews was likely describing this event in chapter 6 when he says this in verse 13 of Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abram, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise to us, the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. One oath. Not two oaths. God and us. God and Abram. But one oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong This is what Abram's experiencing. God swears by himself. And so he cuts the covenant with Abram without Abram. That's what it means. And it suddenly makes sense. In verse 18, it says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I wish that our translations would translate that differently. Not none do. But in the Hebrew, the word made there is the word karat berit. Karat means to cut. Berit means covenant. And you'll find this in Exodus. You'll find this all over the place. Karat berit. To cut a covenant. To cut it. And now the symbolism of a cut sacrifice starts to take notice. God cuts. Abram cuts the animals, but God cuts the covenant. And there is a cutting. There is blood that comes. And as the blood pools up, God, in the form of His holy, divine, fiery presence, walks through the blood alone and cuts the covenant with Abram. And Abram receives all the benefits. So, how's that, Abram, for the answer to your question, how will I know? God self-obligates himself in blood by himself. He essentially says, now you know. Now you know. This illustration suddenly jumps from allegory to real life to real time and real people, as he says, and just in case that wasn't enough, let me list off for you ten nations that will be your prey. That will be your nation, your place. And he lists ten of them. The ten that we know, seven of these are listed again in the book of Joshua. From the river Egypt is not the Nile River. That's, that's the wrong use of that language there. It means the Wadi Egypt Wadi, which is just south of where Israel's borders are. The northern tribe you mentioned there is just north. It's basically what you'd know of Israel. To your descendants, to your seed, I give this land. That's how you know. And let me just name for you all ten of them. You make sure you got it. 
Abram. So what do we do with all this? Please be patient with me for just a few more minutes. Well, how do we apply this? Well, there are three primary applications here. First of all, there's an application to Abram. Three, I guess we should say three primary groups of people that are this applies to. First, this applies to Abram. Isn't this an awesome answer to how shall I know? So Abram is left with no option, but I guess I ought to just believe the Lord. Yeah, and he counted his righteousness. Listen to this. While he was able to gather some animals in order to sacrifice, the smell of blood and flesh drew the birds of prey. Abram did his best to keep the sacrifices uncontaminated, but Abram's best efforts gives way to a sleepy patriarch. Abram falls into a deep sleep. Now who will protect the sacrifices from uncleanliness? Furthermore, a great horror and darkness falls on him. And so the patriarch comes to a sobering reality. What can he do about any of it? All he can do is believe the promises of God and the divine power and willingness to keep his own word. Indeed, promise is all that Abram has, but promise is all that Abram needs. And his faith is counted as righteousness, and he is justified in the sight of God. There's a second audience, though, as well. Those are the people reading it. The nation of Israel, they were reading it in that day. Joshua, who's tasked with conquering this land. And this is, uh, as some have expressed, holy propaganda. In other words, these people looking at these nations and saying, the, the giants are too great, how can we do this? Look back at the promise God made to your father. There's purpose and intentionality. You're supposed, you're doing God's work. You're supposed to go in and possess the land. First of all, it's yours. Secondly, the timing was prophesied. The 400 years are up. It's time now for you not only to possess it, but to bring the justice that God demands. So this is sort of a holy propaganda. Then. They take heart and conquer the land. Follow in the faith of Abram, their leader. Believe and seize their possession. But there is an application to us as well. Galatians chapter 3 brings our application, and I will just read a few of these texts and then be done. Paul likes this. Paul likes uh, Abram. He uses him both Romans and Galatians, and this, this text is what he uses. In Galatians 3, verse 16, we read, now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He does not say in seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. God gave it to Abram by promise. In other words, we see here that the Spirit indicates that the one true heir that is being spoken of in Genesis 15 is Jesus Christ. And thus, all who are in that seed in Christ thus experience the blessings of the seed. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 6, Just as Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abram. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Now hear the word of the Lord. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So Christ is the seed, and those in Christ are sons of Abraham. And so you, if you believe in the Lord, in the promise of the seed, this is accounted to you as righteousness, and you are blessed just like Abraham was. And thus there is no distinction between we who live thousands of years later and the patriarch himself. How Abraham is justified is how any and all may be justified. Believe the divine promise by faith alone. God always saves His people on the basis of grace through means of faith. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only one I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? It is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, no one can boast. But our hope is not in the covenant of Abraham, because this covenant, as amazing as it was, gave way to a better covenant. Not a different one. A more mature covenant of grace. Better in application. Better in blood. Better in presence. Because the Son of God came near His consecrated people and made an oath on the basis of His own blood, not on animals. And He said this, is the new covenant in my blood. He completed the promise of justification rather than predicted it as he did to Abraham because he said it is finished. He actually redeemed then the physical and spiritual sons of Abram. But a similar point remains, and this is what I leave you with. The possession of the land is not yet complete. Payment is made. Possession is not yet complete. In case you're wondering what I mean by that, unfortunately, we're all still here. Like Abraham and his offspring, the delay was encumbered with affliction from the vultures. So the church. Waiting to inherit what we are promised, but we are waiting with tears. How long? How will we know we cry out? When will justice and mercy fully express? We're waiting for the glorification that comes from the justification yet believing. But know this, dear ones, the 